Hello, and thank you for joining our Morning Commute podcast series on multiple sclerosis. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Biogen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Sanofi Genzyme. Information on the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. You can also find the complete six-part series by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS. In this episode, Switching Tracks in MS, Timing and Direction, our faculty will discuss current perspectives on treatment escalation and lateral switches in MS patient care. They will also discuss how to assess clinical response and when a switch is warranted. I'm your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Patricia Coyle, the Director of the MS Comprehensive Care Center in the Department of Neurology at Stony Brook University in New York, and by Dr. John Rinker, Associate Professor of Neurology in the Neurology Department at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Dr. Coyle will lead our discussion. Welcome to our podcast, Switching Tracks in MS, Timing and Direction. John, thank you for joining with me today. It's good to be here, Pat. We're going to be discussing uh, treatment escalation issues. And John, let me ask you to begin with, what basic initiation principles do you use in treating MS? Sure. So when approaching someone who's never been on a disease-modifying therapy before, a lot of my initial considerations um, focus around the severity of disease uh, that the patient appears to have. Patients will often have had prior neurological events or episodes that can give an indication as to how frequently their relapses are occurring or whether they're recovering from their early disease activity. Likewise, imaging such as MRI uh, can give you a sense of what their disease burden is or how many active lesions a patient may have um, at the time of their initial presentation. And so taking this information together, it often influences uh, my thought process about what kind of a treatment I might recommend to that particular patient. Some of the general comments I might make, I think the treatment principles that are emerging as early treatment appears to be critically important. And by early, I mean within three to six months of presentation. We certainly use shared decision-making. And in general, we're using uh, patient factors. We want to elicit their thinking about things. We're using drug features and we're using disease features. And I think you've really highlighted this issue of highly uh, active or, or aggressive MS. Exactly what sort of features would you use to define like aggressive MS, highly active, or a patient you're really worried about? Sure. Um, I think a lot of it begins with what the patient's initial relapse event was. Um, you know, some patients, uh, especially when they have early spinal cord involvement, they may be living with motor impairment or sensory deficits that continue to cause uh, functional impairment on a day-to-day -day basis. So that lack of early recovery 
um, is, uh, to me, one strong indication of a patient who's at risk of rapid accumulation of disability. Likewise, if patients are having repeated relapses, especially without recovering uh, from, from previous disease activity, that's another indication that a patient is at risk for a rapid accumulation of neurological impairment without the opportunity to really recover and heal from the relapses that they've already experienced. So it's, it's sort of like a duck. If it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, we recognize it as very um, active MS, an individual we're worried about. And certainly there are a number of prognostic factors. How much do you use them? And what would you consider some of the bad prognostic indicators? Sure. I mean, you mentioned some of them. Sure. So I, I agree that recognizing or labeling aggressive MS is one of those things that for most of us who take care of a lot of MS, it, you sort of know it when you see it. And I know there have been a number of research consortiums that have attempted to define what exactly is aggressive MS. And so in addition to the things I've already mentioned, um, relapse frequency, um, lack of relapse recovery, other things I may look at would be what the disease burden is, where the, where the lesions distributed uh, throughout the central nervous system. Um, you know, patients who have a heavy disease burden at the time of their initial presentation uh, based on their imaging, in my mind, those patients are at high risk uh, for eventual permanent fixed disability. Likewise, patients who have heavy uh, burden of disease in their spinal cord, which is um, maybe less resilient when it comes to recovery after multiple attacks, those patients I would consider to have aggressive disease and more meriting of a high efficacy therapy. Yeah, it's interesting. Spinal cord lesions, infratentorial lesions, particularly bothersome. Things like male sex, older age of onset, comorbid conditions, um, particularly vascular issues uh, early on, African-American background, cognitive difficulties at the onset of MS. These are other features that would make us very worried, correct? Absolutely. Um, and down here in the South where I practice, we we have a large African-American population in our clinic. And I think our group um, as a whole uh, tends to view the African-American population in particular as a high-risk population and one that we're often um, uh, considering um, more aggressive therapy as an initial treatment option compared to someone who is um, having more milder onset symptoms who's maybe from a less at-risk uh, ethnic group. Once patients are diagnosed and started on the appropriate disease-modifying therapy given their presentation, how do clinicians recognize which patients need a therapy switch? As Dr. Rinker notes, this is the heart of specialized care for MS. Let's rejoin our discussion. Okay, so I wanna switch gears a little bit. So we have our patient, we've personalized our choice, we've tried to match a good disease-modifying therapy. I think we have 25 distinct agents at the current time, including generics covering 10 mechanisms of action. But once on a disease-modifying therapy, we're going to continue to monitor them. And there's the possibility of a switch. And there are multiple reasons to switch an MS individual off their original disease-modifying therapy. John, could you just review for us the various reasons to switch a DMT? Absolutely. And I think this really gets to the heart of what specialized MS care is all about, is recognizing 
um, when and how to switch therapies in patients who merit such a change in treatment. So I think the first and maybe the easiest category of therapy switches uh, are the ones that occur because patients simply do not tolerate whatever their initial treatment choice was, or maybe they're having some um, adverse event, uh, such as abnormal lab work or some other complication that merits a change in therapy. And so I think this brings us to uh, the first strategy when it comes to switching therapy, which is sort of the lateral move. Um, and I think those of us who've been treating MS for a number of years can remember back to the days of having um, little to offer other than, than various forms of beta interferon and glutaramoracetate. And in those days, it was not uncommon that we would switch from one interferon to another interferon um, or to glutaramoracetate, not because we necessarily expected um, drastic differences in efficacy, but because we were looking for a better fit when it came to tolerability. And so I think in those situations, um, a lateral move is appropriate. But that, of course, is not the only situation in which we change therapy. Uh, we also, especially with the development of more high-efficacy medications, um, now need to be looking at mechanisms of action and thinking if one particular medication doesn't seem to be working, when do we switch to a drug that may have a different and more effective mechanism of action? So it's a tolerability issue, but it's also breakthrough disease activity, which is the basis for close clinical follow-up and surveillance brain MRIs, um, et cetera. And then I think sometimes people switch on needle fatigue. I think quality of life is a valid issue. If somebody's on a treatment, but they're miserable on it, that's a reason to switch. Or a pernicious laboratory value. Let's say they're developing a marked lymphopenia and are becoming symptomatic from it with, with uh, infections. That might be a reason. Or there's a difference in risk. There's a change in their risk-benefit ratio, which I think is particularly pertinent for progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or PML. So it's interesting. Uh, there are a number of different reasons to switch. Don't forget to go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS2 to claim your credits and evaluate this activity. Let's rejoin Drs. Rinker and Coyle as they further discuss switching treatments for patients coping with breakthrough disease. Now, now, John, if, if somebody's going to switch because they've had breakthrough activity on their chosen disease-modifying therapy, do you have any principles uh, to help guide that switch if it's due to a breakthrough disease activity? Absolutely. This is where uh, the discussions between me and my patients have to, by necessity, become quite individualized. So I'm often thinking, first of all, if a patient's had breakthrough disease, um, what's the nature of that breakthrough? If it's an isolated radiologic breakthrough where they have new lesions, I might um, be less inclined to move towards the most aggressive types of therapies. But if they are having a significant breakthrough uh, with new disability that they have not recovered from, or if they're having numerous active lesions on their MRI in association with a clinical relapse, then I'm more likely to look for one of the higher efficacy therapies. Talking to patients, it often becomes clear that the patients themselves have not only uh, preferences for how they take their medication, but also different tolerance levels for what the risks associated are uh, with some of the newer high efficacy medications. So uh, tailoring my recommendations to factors such as patient preference, the severity of their disease, 
and what their uh, risk profile might be for certain agents um, all factor into my thought process. And when it comes to some of those specific considerations, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this, you know, things I'm looking at are comorbid illnesses, um, JC virus status, whether or not they have immunity to common infections um, like the varicella virus, uh, things of that nature can really inform what my recommendations are for an individual patient. Got it. I might just um, highlight two core principles. I think if a switch is being made because of break, unacceptable breakthrough disease activity, you need to move to a different mechanism of action and you need to move to a perceived higher efficacy disease modifying therapy. Now, John, I've heard a lot about this escalation versus high efficacy slash induction type therapy. Could you just uh, explain what your thinking is on this? And, and please define for me induction. People have called it immune reconstitution or durable. I don't think enough people explain exactly what induction therapy is. Absolutely. And I think it's a good idea to, to take a step back and really pay a little bit of attention to the definitions that we're using when we talk about these different treatment approaches. So when it comes to escalation, in my mind, what that denotes is really beginning with therapies that have um, moderate efficacy and high safety. So in general, these include the original platform therapies such as the beta interferons and glutiramer acetate. And then the, the principle of escalation suggests that once a patient has evidence of breakthrough disease uh, clinically or radiologically, that the, uh, the next treatment selected needs to improve upon the effectiveness of those original therapies. So for a patient, for example, who has breakthrough disease on a beta interferon, one might look to an S1P receptor modulator or an infused medication such as natalizumab or ocrelizumab. Uh, these would be escalations in therapy that are driven by evidence from clinical studies uh, that show that, that certain medications are more likely to prevent um, subsequent relapses than others. But the principle here of escalation means starting on the safe end and then becoming more aggressive with the therapy as the disease activity dictates. On the other hand, when you mention um, high efficacy therapy and specifically induction therapy, this is in some ways the reverse of that. Early intensive therapy or high efficacy therapy really asks the clinician to make a judgment call early in a patient's disease course to uh, decide whether a patient is demonstrating a sufficiently aggressive disease activity to change the risk-benefit ratio. In other words, when the multiple sclerosis appears to be the greater risk uh, compared to whatever known uh, side effects or uh, risk factors there are that are associated with, with a particular therapy, then looking to those high-efficacy medications may be justified. Induction therapy is really a form of high-efficacy therapy that really intends to sort of drastically and sharply reduce the autoimmune activity in a given individual, usually with um, cytotoxic medications such as cyclophosphamide, uh, maybe alemtuzumab, uh, with the intention of then later backing off and reverting to a, a lower efficacy therapy in hopes that the initial shock to the system can result in a sustained reduction in um, the natural history of the illness. 
Yeah, I kind of think about the induction strategies. These would be autologous hematopoietic bone marrow transplant, an experimental treatment, oral cladribin, alemtuzumab, when we were using it, mitoxantrone, as treatments that are designed to perhaps permanently or longstanding change the immune system and allow the person to maybe get on a different trajectory and allow them potentially to be drug-free for a prolonged period of time. They're a very special, they're a subset of the high efficacy agents. The irony, John, is that it's most logical to use them, honestly, extremely early in treatment naive, yet that's not where we're using them. Would you use an induction strategy in a young, newly diagnosed person, very intellectual and bright, who said, I want to go on a potentially long-lasting effect, even though I don't have your perception of aggressive disease. I'll put you on the spot here. What would you do, John? That is an excellent question, and fortunately one that doesn't come up overly often. When it has arisen, I found that the best approach, in my opinion, is to really have a frank discussion about what the, what the risks involved are to the individual. Because with very few exceptions, the, the more um, aggressive the treatment approach, whether it's stem cell transplantation or other cytotoxic medications, I think a lot of times patients are not aware of what the consequences are uh, to their health. So thinking about things like future risk of malignancy, um, future risk of other autoimmune conditions, or especially in young females, which is extremely important in multiple sclerosis, uh, concerns about fertility, child planning, uh, that sort of thing. And I find that having those discussions where you really talk frankly about the possible adverse effects of early aggressive treatment can often help the patient see with a little maybe clearer perspective on what's appropriate and not appropriate. I also think that providing alternative suggestions that may achieve the same goals without quite the same degree of risk can be a helpful approach. So for example, a patient who, like you suggest, may have recently diagnosed multiple sclerosis and is looking for um, an, an early curative approach to the disease, may be persuaded to instead go with something like ocrelizumab or natalizumab, where there's a high therapy or there's a high likelihood that the disease can be brought under control without the long-term risks to health that may be associated with some of the more aggressive therapies. Appropriately switching DMTs, monitoring patients closely, and escalating therapy as needed are all part of the clinician's armamentarium in managing MS. Doctors Coyle and Rinker now turn to the albatross in MS, disability, transitioning from relapsing MS to secondary progressive MS. Great, thanks, John. I want to turn now to one of the most feared disability markers. When we start treatment, we start treatment early, and I think we need to start treatment young. My hope is to have the patient be able to live a normal life, that they not become disabled from MS. Well, well one of the most feared disability markers is transition from relapsing MS to secondary progressive MS the neurodegenerative phase slowly going downhill. We know that is age locked around menopause, around midlife, 45 to 55. Um, what do we know about, uh, and, and well, quite frankly, in the modern era, uh, smaller proportions of MS patients are transitioning from relapsing to secondary progressive MS. We certainly know that. 
I'd like to hear your thoughts on that and what data is emerging about the impact of treatment and how early or late and the efficacy of the treatment in preventing this transition from relapsing to progressive disease. Yeah. So thanks, Pat. I think um, one of the more interesting discussions and more challenging discussions that I have with my own clinic patients at this time is trying to explain how little we're able to predict um, if or when a patient may transition from relapsing to secondary progressive MS. And I have to explain that a lot of the information we have about how long it takes for a relapsing patient to become progressive really derives from data that was collected well before the era of disease-modifying therapies. And I think uh, since the early 1990s, when these therapies have become available, we still are redefining and, and learning just how much of a long-term effect these treatments have on patients and um, whether or not they transition to secondary progressive MS and, and what that secondary progressive course might be like if, they're, uh, if the natural history of the relapsing phase of their illness has been significantly altered. And so I think when it comes to evidence to support uh, the early institution of treatment and its effect on transitioning to secondary progression, we can look at a number of studies that have tried to assign propensity scores to patients to see whether um, early and sustained treatment with the disease-modifying drug results in a different outcome than in patients who have not been on treatment, whether by choice or whether by other some circumstance. And using these propensity models, we do see that uh, there is a, a delayed or a decreased rate of progression, uh, excuse me, of conversion to secondary progression in this patient population. What we really don't know is how much of an impact the, the more recently approved high efficacy therapies have on this process. I do think that um, in MS, the same way that we have been hearing about for years in stroke, uh, that time is brain or time is spinal cord in the case of multiple sclerosis, and that any early initiation of rescue therapy that will suppress or redirect uh, the harmful autoimmune response is likely to have a long-term benefit when it comes to preserving the brain and the spinal cord um, and thereby maintaining a patient's functional status and hopefully delaying or preventing uh, the conversion to secondary progressive MS. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's a little bit scary to me, uh, the recent data that is suggesting that in these large relapsing trials, the relapsing patients are worsening due to progression, independent of relapses. And they aren't recognized as having secondary progressive disease. And, and clearly the studies are suggesting that both patients and physicians are missing the, the transition to progressive disease. So I think if we establish effective treatments, we probably want to initiate them very quickly, knowing that uh, neurodegeneration is a component of MS from the very, very beginning. It is kind of, you know, a bothersome observation. I agree, Pat. And I think uh, you touch on a very important point, which is as dramatic and as impressive as the research has been in identifying immune modulatory therapies that can change the inflammatory course of MS, what we still do not have are um, proven effective neuroprotective agents that may address the non-inflammatory or principally neurodegenerative aspects of MS that I think are critical to the uh, conversion to secondary progression 
and the disability that results from that process. Yes. So I'm going to ask John to give his uh, take home from this section in just a minute. I will just say that with regard to this thorny issue of escalation versus high efficacy or even induction from the get-go, um, we do have two randomized prospective trials that were funded by PCORI where individuals are being randomized to a um, escalation arm versus a high efficacy arm. And then they're being tracked. Uh, this is treat MS and deliver MS. So this may give us some evidence-based data in regard to that particular question. John, do you, do you want to sum up any, any impressions or comments from this? No, Pat, I agree with you. I think the treat MS um, trial is, is crucial to distinguishing or to identifying the best approach for how to manage these treatment decisions for our patients. And I think the important thing to point out about TREAT-MS is that patients uh, who enrolled in that study um, were newly diagnosed and had not been on previous therapies unless only for a transient amount of time. And so by testing this question in a controlled fashion, we should hopefully be able to recommend not just to patients who have the most aggressive disease, but also those patients who may at least initially appear to have more you know, average or run-of-the-mill multiple sclerosis whether a high efficacy treatment is both effective at uh, preventing conversion to progression or greater disability down the road, and also if it can be done safely. Uh, and so I think there's uh, important questions to be answered uh, in doing these kinds of studies. Well, this was a most interesting discussion. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Pat. And thank you for joining us today. Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS2 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. In our next podcast in this series, Dr. Coyle and Rinker will return to discuss the fumarates, particularly the newest fumarate, diroximel fumarate. That podcast, alike but not alike, can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS3. And you can find all of our podcasts in the six-part series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS.